Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Liberty and the Law, the podcast series that examines the critical elements of a strong legal defense in criminal cases. Join respected attorney James Dore for this lively discussion on the rights of criminal defendants and the important role defense attorneys play in our legal system. We've got so much to discuss today that I'm going to try and keep this introduction brief. Uh, hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell. We're, we're back for another edition of Liberty and the Law. And as always, I'm joined by Lavelle Law, criminal defense attorney James Dore. Uh, James, I'd like to say that the case we're going to discuss today is, is one of the most interesting we've shared, but you know, I'm afraid someone's going to ask why I would say that, and I, I can't really answer because I, I'm not sure I've got a clear understanding. So you're going to have to guide me through <laughs> this. You, have, you up for the task? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's, let's dive into this one and see when we get figured out. All right. Well, we're going to look at a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, really just a couple of weeks ago, in the uh, Tims versus Indiana ruling, and this dealt with the seizure of property as a as penalty for a drug offense. So, can you maybe just give us a quick overview of the the action that led to the suit uh, originally being sure. filed? Sure. The uh, the defendant in the criminal case was convicted of, of a, a, a drug crime, uh, basically uh, agreeing to sell to an undercover officer. Um, you know, the background is uh, the, the defendant in the case was injured at work, um, got addicted to painkillers. It's the same opioid story we hear nationwide. Eventually, he turns to heroin uh, for his habit. Um, not related to that, he had uh, uh, his father passed away, and he had inherited, I think, $73,000. I think about 43000 he spent on uh, a Land Rover, and the rest he blew through. Um, doesn't really explain how, but the usual kind of he doesn't know how it went through the cash, basically. But later on, when um, you know he's he's trying to figure out how to support his habit or you know to get his drugs, he's convinced by uh, somebody another undercover you know informant to sell drugs, and this is leads to two drug buys that lead to his arrest, criminal conviction, and then this forfeiture proceeding against the Land Rover proceeds from that because he had been in his Land Rover when he was arrested on his way to go and complete a third drug transaction. And we're going to talk about the Land Rover in particular in a couple of minutes here, but, you know, it's interesting because this is certainly not the first case we've discussed in which the defendant pled guilty to the charge. I mean, they they said, yep, I did that, I'm guilty, but then they filed suit against the government. So it's it's not about the offense, but the government's action that followed. And I think from your description, this this wasn't a, a high-level target in the war on drugs. This was just a kind of an average guy who had, as you said, fallen into a habit. Exactly. He doesn't fit the profile of your, you know, the street corner drug dealer or whoever you're trying to take down in this war on drugs. This guy's clearly, you know, it, it, it's, his experience is not outside the realm of an average American when we look at it. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is somebody more relatable to the average American on the street as opposed to, you know, how we relate to, say, the drug dealer who most people say, well, no, I don't have anything in common with that person. But and guess what? In the eyes of the law, and especially when it comes to your assets and what they can seize and confiscate, you're very much like that drug dealer on the corner. And it's that asset acquisition or, or um, claiming of the asset by the government that's at question here. And, you know, the history of the case is the first two Indiana courts found for Mr. Timms, if I've got this right, and then the Indiana Supreme Court upheld the state's claim. For this one guy with one vehicle, um, 
this is more opinion than fact, but doesn't it seem odd to you that the state continued to pursue this through the court so vigorously? Well, look at what's on the line. Cases set precedent, and if the precedent is to the state that you know this is viewed as excessive or unreasonable, then that's a lot of money that you know a lot of assets that the police would otherwise be seizing, that you know they're using for their budgets. This isn't you know that's what's being why law enforcement is so gung ho about these kind of cases because they can seize the assets and use those assets you know in their own budget um and they did you know it can come back to higher salaries and whatever else is related to that yeah. so um there's there's direct involvement in, in by the police in confiscating this this uh, direct benefit to the police by confiscating these assets well let me uh, let me guide you back to the facts after steering you off on opinion there for a minute so but this is where it gets confusing for me is this a case about the eighth amendment or the 14th amendment uh, yes, it's a case of both. It really, it's it's using the Fourteenth Amendment to apply the Eighth Amendment to all of the states. So there was some disagreement among states as to whether the Eighth Amendment applied to them directly, um, it, it, because the Bill of Rights traditionally was was only applicable to the Congress or U.S. government, it wasn't applicable to states. But the Fourth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, among other things, um, has been used to incorporate the Bill of Rights. Uh, 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 directly to, as a prohibition to state government action. So um, it's kind of resolved that difference as, hey, does the Eighth Amendment apply to the states? Because the Indiana is saying, no, we don't have to follow this, this Eighth Amendment. Um, but now they're saying, yes, uh, they do have to file, uh, follow with regard to excessive fines in this case. And, and that's really what it comes down to. I mean, the, the question here was, did the uh, fine – the being levied against the defendant exceed the punishment, correct? Uh, yeah. And it, it's really like a lot of uh, things in law. We look at reasonableness, um, and it guides many principles with, with judicial philosophy. So is this government action reasonable? Under the circumstances, I think a lot of people would say that uh, a drug deal worth you know a couple hundred dollars isn't necessarily worth uh, it, uh, demand the seizure of a vehicle you know, worth over forty thousand. Um, this is there's there's a, 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 a it's a little out of balance, I think many people yeah. think. Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed discussions with Lavelle Law Attorney James Dore, and today a great example of why um, he always brings a great deal of clarity and understanding to these matters of, of criminal law, and he does the same with clients. He takes time on this podcast to carefully explain the law and how it should be applied, and he does that in his work uh, on a regular basis. Uh, pick up other podcasts we've done and read some of his articles at lavellelaw.com. Um, you get a great sense for uh, for the work uh, James does and the, the way he approaches law. Um, now, I, I think in your work, you'll be the first to admit, James, that there are times when people rep- you represent are guilty of a crime, and you, all, you may even have them plead so inappropriate. But as you were just talking, what, what jumps out in this case is that, yes, Mr. Timms pled guilty, but he was able to prove very clearly, as you alluded to, that the vehicle he purchased was done so by using funds he received from an insurance policy after his father passed away. Again, not a drug kingpin here who was making money off the streets and buying a Lamborghini. He he bought it through other funds. And that's is that pretty much where the court drew the line and said, look, you know, there's a clear line here. Don't cross it. This is not something you can take. I'm sure that factored in. Um it wasn't the, the, what I would say would be the sole basis. I think uh, 
Um, it, it, there's there's other rationale um, getting into that. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm kind of losing my my train but, train of well, thought here. Well, and, and I'll tell you I'll tell you exactly what what I wanted to talk about next because you you mentioned precedent. Um, and in reading this case, you know, we talk about precedents. Um, the court in this case, they actually trace the protection against excessive fines back to the year 1215 in the Magna Carta. Um, so they definitely felt that you know this protection was deeply rooted in in our culture and past culture. So um, you know, as you look at it, I think you know my my sense is that the court said, as we've discussed. Um, there's just only so much you can do from a from a seizure point of view, and people still have rights beyond that, um, criminal or not. Right, right. I think it, it's one of the things that makes this interesting uh, an interesting case, and so interesting is, you know, the, both the majority and the concurring opinions are citing the same English common law. They're going back to the Magna Carta and what excessive fines mean, and and how excessive fines were used in government abuse in the past, and what kind of reforms over time that we saw. So, um, you know, it, the case here, I mean, it, it, the nexus, it, what made it wasn't, it, it, getting back to your previous question, it, it's not like the normal, the what you'd be used to seeing, whether you got your rich drug dealer who's buying fancy cars like you thought, right? Yeah. And they're using the yeah. drug proceeds to buy that. Here, the nexus was only that he used his vehicle to go and facilitate the, the drug deal, which, you know, it most drug dealers are going to have a car of some sort of some sort of transportation involved to get from one place yep. to another. So, you know, that was the, the nexus, the loose nexus to, to why the state was, you know, going after that, that vehicle. And I think, you know, just, just on balance, looking at the whole history of the excessive fines clause, you know, that's what the court took a look at. Like, this is kind of, this is excessive. Uh, uh, and, you know, implying uh, the 14th Amendment to apply the 8th Amendment to the states, they're going to, they're, you know, I think, trying to rein that in a little bit, at least provide some guidance. Now, I mentioned being confused at the beginning of our conversation, which is not unique as I enter into these, some of these discussions. But here's a well, little I got confused complex. during the conversation, so that's okay, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, when I went through it, and you mentioned it already, there were multiple opinions. They all concurred. Um, and in this case, there was one by um, our newest justice wrote wrote one opinion, and then a lengthier one by Justice Thomas. And we've certainly mentioned his name in the past in writing uh, opinions of this sort. But explain the point of writing an opinion that says, "I agree with the outcome, but not how you reached it." Well, I, I guess that's it. They, you know, they they concur in a result, but not the path the court took to get there. So the court the court used the due process uh, uh, clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. And you know the the, the Thompson, uh, Thomas and Gorsuch basically said no, you don't need to do that. They, they, this, these are privileges and immunities that should be included with that section of the Fourteenth Amendment. These, and when they trace the history of the excessive fine clause, right? That's what they're doing. They're saying this is English common law. This is this is one of the privileges that you inherit by being an American, right? So that's what that's what they the vehicle they would use is privileges and immunities clause, not the due process clause, which has been used in the past. You know, for the court to expand other rights, so they're they're disagreeing on the, the fundamental basis of you know, 14th Amendment law and how to you know apply certain uh, uh, Bill of Rights uh, provisions to the states. I think ultimately they're in agreement of you know, but they still apply to the states. And let's get this you know get the the proper result done here. 
Well, a couple minutes left, and there's a few more things I want to throw at you here. First of all, I, we were talking about this particular case in Indiana, and you mentioned a, a recent case here in Illinois as well that uh, you found interesting, not, not only so much for the case, but for the dissenting opinion that was written in that. What, what can you tell us about it? Well, this was kind of a precursor. When I when I when this case popped up, the Tim's decision, I ended up going back and looking at this. It's a 2000 a forfeiture case involving a 2010 Harley Davidson, and that's how you find the case. So, uh-huh. and there was a great dissenting opinion in that case, and you know the court correctly. I mean, the dissenting justice pointed out Eighth Amendment law and the same things that we were just talking about with the Magna Carta and the, and the English common law and the you know the English Bill of Rights and the, and even how they incorporated the Virginia Declaration of Rights in this country. He he, he goes mm-hmm. through a lot of the history of the Eighth Amendment. It's quite fascinating. He was spot on to what this decision came out and said uh, in the Tim's decision. Well, it's. Um you know, it's interesting to see the way these cases uh, are reflected in different states. And, of course, that's one of the questions is, as you mentioned, the Bill of Rights being applied at the state level. But if if you can, I, and I'm not sure if you have it in front of you, but the last thing that was a layer of complexity for me on the Indiana case was it doesn't look to me like the Supreme Court, they didn't necessarily put an end to this case. Now, it, does it go back to a lower court? And, and if so, what happens there? I, that's, I think go, they remanded the case because there's certain things that weren't figured out at the trial level. So there's things that, that have to be, um, and again, I'd have to, to, to go into the nuts and bolts of it too, but they remanded it for certain things to be held because uh, uh, okay. hearings to be held on certain issues because they didn't have the, the facts before the court yes. um, somewhere through the process. So they kicked it back down to the states and like, all right, you got some more work to do on this. Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things when these when that happens, and uh, you know, the whole process may begin again. But that means we'll have more conversations. So um, I think we'll have plenty Absolutely. to talk about. <laughs> well, James Dorr, thanks for being with me. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, again, um, make time to visit uh, LavelleLaw.com. You can you can check podcasts, you can read articles, and find information about uh, Attorney James Dorr there. And uh, always give him a call at eight four seven seven zero five seven five five five. Um, great conversation, and uh, he's uh, more than willing to sit and talk about uh, uh, any instances you might have or issues uh, in the criminal defense area. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll look forward to talking to you again next month on Liberty and the Law.